Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, local astronomer and author Nick Lom will join us to discuss solar eclipses. And yes, there is one coming, but not for us here in Melbourne. And the European Space Agency is poised to launch a spacecraft to explore the icy moons of Jupiter. The Mars helicopter Ingenuity and its successors, Krishna's, has its made its 50th flight. Also on Mars, what has the Chinese rover Zurong found? And an environmental monitoring instrument hitched a ride on the latest Intelsat communication satellite launched on Good Friday. And just a note that uh, tonight is Yuri's Night. Yes, April the 12th, Yuri's Night. And uh, we celebrated the life of Yuri Gagarin on March the 29th when we were marking his death. Now we're going to have our guest tonight, Nick Lom, who is an astronomer and an author. And he knows more about solar eclipses than I certainly do. Welcome to the Space Show, Nick. Good evening, Andrew. Now, an exciting event will happen on April the 20th. What is it? That will be a total eclipse of the sun visible from uh, from Northwest Cape on the west coast of Western Australia. That is the only place in Australia that will actually see totality. And total eclipses are most spectacular events and something like 50,000 people are expected to, uh, to crowd into Northwest Cape and the town of Axmas, which is... Uh, far more than they normally can cope with. Yeah, normally uh, an, an eclipse track sort of tracks, well, almost right across the globe, uh, it, it, you know, in terms of span, not in width, of course, and therefore there'd be a long track along which you could see it. But this one, it only touches at Exmouth. Why is that? It is what, It does have a long track. It is what's called a hybrid eclipse. That is... Uh, some place that where it starts in the Indian Ocean, it's an annular eclipse. That is, you can still see a little bit of the sun's bright disk uh, around the dark disk of the moon. It's on me. And, and what and, will the people who are actually in Exmouth see? Well, people in Exmouth will see a total eclipse. So by the time it reaches Exmouth, um, then uh, it will be a total eclipse. And it will remain a total eclipse uh, through um, Barrow Island, which is off the coast of uh, WA, then Timor-Leste and West Papua. Then after that, it will uh, again become annular and the eclipse will end uh, in the North Pacific. Okay. And what about people elsewhere in Western Australia? What will they see? Just like the rest of Australia, they'll see a partial eclipse of the sun. So, um, the further away you are from the track of the eclipse, the, uh, the less percentage of the sun's uh, 
sun's disk or the sun's diameter um, is uh, covered by the moon. So, for example, Darwin is the closest. It's the closest to the eclipse track. Uh, Darwin in Northern Territory, and that has uh, the fraction of the moon's diameter is 85%. So it's 85% covered by the moon, as seen from uh, Darwin. Then from Melbourne, it's only 21%. Oh, oh so we will, we will see something here in Melbourne. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll still see, but it's only. 21%, so one-fifth of the um, of the sun will be covered, but we'll see a bite. Now, of course, a bite taken out of the sun. But, of course, extreme care has to be taken when uh, trying to view an eclipse. Um, you should never, ever look directly at the sun because that can do permanent damage to your, to your eyes. Yeah, <laughs> eclipse glasses available, um, which are spe- specially made. Um, but even there, with those, you have to be careful that they are of high quality and properly certificated. Or the easiest way of doing it is to make a pinhole camera. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, what you take a piece of cardboard, um, make a pinhole, or you make a number of pinholes. Um, you could actually trace a hole, sort of make a pattern out of the pinholes, and then you project the image with your back to the sun uh, onto a piece of white paper, and then you should see. Oh, great! Normally you would normally you would see the a, a circle of the sun's disk, but um, during the eclipse you will see this small bite. At least if you're watching from Melbourne, um, you'll see a small bike bite gradually taken from the from the sun and mm-hmm. even that's interesting it doesn't have the spectacle that uh, people in Xmas will uh, will experience but uh, hopefully experience if clouds don't come in the way but uh, it's still worthwhile trying to see but as I keep saying uh, extreme with extreme care now I've been in a situation where there was going to be an annular eclipse several hundred kilometres away, <laughs> but where I was, the uh, sun was going, I think it was about 90% covered, something like that. And I was out with a group of people watching and people were walking by and, and saying, what are you looking at? <laughs> because they hadn't noticed that it actually perceptibly gotten dark. It's, it's the, the darkness at that time at level, well, your eye adjusts to it, of course, and so these people hadn't noticed that the sun was being covered over. No, it has to be considerably more, even more than 90% before people start noticing the, the, the drop in brightness. But one thing you can notice, and especially the closer and closer you can come to your uh, totality, is that uh, um, shadows become sharper because light is only coming from a small region on the sun. So shadows suddenly become brighter. Normally shadows from the sun are a little bit fuzzy because the sun has a finite area or finite angle of diameter and angle of its in the sky. But just before an eclipse or when 90% of the sun is covered, then 
the light is only coming from a small area and you get much sharper shadows. So that's something that's, uh, that could be noticeable. Now, why do people travel all around the world to see an eclipse? It's just a fantastic experience. Um, I've seen three on, on the street. There are people who have seen many more. But um, each eclipse was uh, just a great experience. Seeing the shadow coming towards you, seeing the shadows becoming uh, shadows becoming sharper, uh, seeing the diamond ring. You see, when it's when the final little bit of light comes through the um, through mountains or crater or or crater or valleys on the edge of the moon, um, then you get a one little bit of light while there's already a bit of the corona around the dark disk of the moon. So um, you see what's called the diamond ring effect. And then the sun goes out, suddenly goes out, and you can see the faint, it's fainter outer atmosphere, the corona. And that's something we can never see, um, never really experience outside an eclipse. So that is what people come to see. And then eventually... Um, whether it's 30 seconds later, a minute or five minutes later, depending on the uh, length of totality, then you see the various phenomena in reverse. You get the diamond ring, then you get the first little bit of glimpse of light from the disk of the sun. Um, darkness uh, starts to lift. Um, shadows become less sharp. As um, uh, so I say it, just an experience. You have to be there to experience it. Mm. And another thing is also because if you go in a group, if you're not watching it yourself, there is this great camaraderie um, among people and the great excitement. Um, I remember watching the um, last um, total eclipse visible from Australia from a beach in, at Palm Cove Beach in far um, north Queensland. It was in 2012, and people started clapping when the, the eclipse was over. I mean, everybody was just so excited. I was, uh, for that eclipse, I was in uh, Port, uh, Port Douglas, and I was amazed when I looked along the beach during the eclipse. There were people trying to take photographs, but they'd forgotten to switch off their flashlight or the flashlight went on automatically. It was so dark. <laughs> and so the whole thing was lit up with all these flashes going flash, 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 flash <laughs> along the beach. I thought that was so funny. Anyway. Yeah, but you always get that and uh, try to do that. I need someone like yourself or Mr. Google to tell me when the next eclipse will be. But how on earth did ancient people predict eclipses? Or didn't they? <laughs> well, somehow um, the ancient Greeks managed to figure out how to do it. They did um, possibly have calculating machines. There is the famous Antikyra, um, Antikyra, I think that's a better pronunciation, um, device, um, which did, does calculate the position of the planets and the sun and the moon. So... It's possible they had a calculating machine of some kind to predict it. But other times, it might be just observation. 
um, the Australian Aboriginal people apparently did. Yeah, we were able to uh, uh, predict eclipses, at least some some experts among them, by just observing the moon uh, moon just before moon uh, just before but a few days before totality, and just seeing that it's actually going to go in front of the sun. So somehow it is possible. Obviously, it's much easier to think uh, with modern calculators and modern computers. Um, it became uh, it's much much easier. Well, we're talking with on the space show with Nick Lom, who uh, is an astronomer, and he's written a book called The Eclipse Chasers, and it was co-written with Tona Stevenson. Uh, Nick, could you please tell us a bit about her? Um, Dr. Stevenson was, for quite a number of years, the manager at Sydney Observatory, where I I was the astronomer, I was the curator at the observatory. Um, So I know her from there. Um, Since then, she's obtained a PhD in the basically in the history of astronomy and uh, is an honorary history history affiliate at the University of Sydney. Mm. And and your background as you we've mentioned as as an astronomer? Professional that's one? Right, I've, <laughs> that's right. I have a PhD in astronomy. I uh, worked at Sydney Observatory um, before it became part of a museum um, and then uh, years after I started at the observatory um, it, it became part of a large museum in Sydney um, the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences better known as the Powerhouse Museum and uh, I remained at the observatory for 30 years um, I've now moved to Melbourne uh, um, but I'm still uh, research- and I still write to Australasian Sky Guide, which is an annual publication um, indicating where the planets uh, planets and the sun and moon are um, each year um, and giving the latest astronomical information and uh, as well as researching the history of Australian astronomy. Mm. And that's how I became involved uh, in work for this book. I start, I've Came interested in the 1871 eclipse, a total eclipse visible from far north Queensland. Um, I heard a little bit about it, and then I started researching it, and it was an, and it turned out to be an extremely important eclipse. Um, this was the first time that the various colonies um, in Australia had cooperated scientifically. And, and an expedition was mounted um, with people from Melbourne, from uh, Sydney, and also one person from uh, Brisbane. And they went up by boat. Which they couldn't fly in 1871. Um, they went up by boat up to far north Queensland to Cape York and uh, tried to observe the eclipse. Um, it was very well recorded eclipse. A fairly well recorded expedition. Um, there was a newspaper reporter who went along on the uh, on on the on the travel up to uh, up to Cape York, and there's two photographers. 
So it was very well recorded and a very interesting eclipse. And uh, from there on, I started looking at other eclipses that have occurred in Australia, um, the 1857 eclipse, the uh, 1910 eclipse in Tasmania. Um, my my co-writer, um, Dona, looked at the 1922 eclipse, which is an extremely important eclipse, and you might want to discuss that because that was uh, the famous Einstein eclipse. And then there were eclipses in 1976, uh, 1974, visible in Western Australia, and 1976, uh, visible from uh, New South Wales. Um, I had, uh, particularly Melbourne, it was totally Melbourne. So um, these historical um, accounts of, of uh, past eclipses make up a large part of the book. We also look at uh, coming eclipses, starting mm-hmm. with uh, this one coming up next week on the 20th of April. But there, there are eclipses uh, coming up. There are four more eclipses coming up in the next 15 years. Um, there is one, uh, it's a really big one, um, which will in 22nd of July 2028, which will go over Sydney. So the, Five, six million people in Sydney will have a chance to see a total eclipse from their backyards. Oh, right. <laughs> I believe the track of that one goes from Burke through Dubbo, Mudgee and Sydney and off out to sea from there. That's correct. That's, that's correct. Um, so there will be quite a few other places where from where the eclipse will be visible. But the greatest number of people obviously are going to be in Sydney. Sydney, yeah. And people just going mm. out to their backyards and uh, and trying to observe. Now, how can listeners uh, to this program get your book, which is called Eclipse Chasers? It's a book published by CSRO Publishing. It has a recommended retail price of uh, thirty nine ninety nine. Um, it was first. It was released last month in March. There were a number of uh, book launches as well at the time, and they should be available through all good bookstores. There, the book is also available online, um, online from quite a number of places. If people search among the different uh, different stores, um, different online stores, they might find. Some ditch uh, sell it for cheaper than the recommended retail price of uh, thirty nine ninety nine. But uh, so far, we've had very good reviews and very nice comments um, because it's a total guide to uh, eclipses in Australia. puts really put puts them in in context from uh, including the knowledge of. Uh, of the Aboriginal people, the First Nations people of Australia, um, European the eclipses witnessed by Europeans since uh, European uh, settlement, and the coming eclipses, and plus uh, guidance on how to observe them and uh, what's the best way best way of observing them. Mm. Now, could we just pop back uh, as we leave this topic now? 
Um, Nick, to that eclipse after the First World War. Now, there's an eclipse that's attributed to Arthur Eddington proving that Einstein was correct. And I believe Arthur Eddington got a bit more credit than he really deserved. What's the true story behind that? Oh, that's right. There was an eclipse in uh, May 1919, and uh, Arthur Eddington, who's a very famous British astronomer, British um, astronomer of the time, um, organised uh, two eclipse expeditions. One uh, went to Brazil, Sopral in Brazil, and he himself went to Princip Island, which is uh, an island of the west coast of Africa. And uh, what they were trying to do is, uh, is verify a prediction from uh, Albert Einstein. Einstein predicted that uh, light is bent uh, when, it, when it passes uh, near the sun or near any massive gravitational body. Um, it's bent by a very small fraction, 1.75 seconds of arc, which is very, very small. And the, way, and the only way that uh, stars near the sun can be observed is, uh, or at least the bending of the light, is during the total eclipse. So the idea was to uh, take photographs during the total eclipse of stars near the sun and compare those photographs with photographs taken uh, a few months earlier um, of the same region of the sky with the sun, uh, with the, without the sun. So, and by comparing the two photographs, um, they expected to try and prove that uh, there was this slight shift in the position of the, of the stars near the sun during the eclipse by this tiny amount of 1.75 seconds of arc, um, at least when the, when the star was right near the edge of the sun. Exactly. Unfortunately, they didn't get good results. Um, I mean, some, they did get some photographs with some stars on them. They measured them, but they had to exclude a lot of them. Um, they arbitrarily chose which points they, which points they were going to use in their, uh, for their measurement and for their results. And they did announce that they proved Einstein's prediction of the deflection of uh, starlight, but in fact it was still fairly questionable. And uh, that's why people, astronomers, really wanted further proof. Mm. Well, Nick, um, we really welcome this book, Eclipse Chasers, written by yourself and Tona Stevenson, available for all good bookstores. I won't mention any, but um, yes, all good bookstores will have it. And it's been out since last month. Thank you for joining us on The Space Show, Nick. Pleasure to speak to you, Andrew. Goodbye. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, The Sounds of the Bayside. And as we were talking there with Nick Lom, if you want to find the full story of how Eddington is given a bit more credit than he should have for proving Einstein correct, gravitational lensing, 
Read the book, and it tells the story of the eclipse of 1922 here in Australia when that final proof came in. So uh, the book is Eclipse Chasers, written by Nick Lom and Tona Stevenson, and is available from all good booksellers, and also it's available online as an e-book. Time now for Space Show News. Well, a spacecraft is on the launch pad on top of the penultimate, that's second to last, Ariane 5 ECA rocket, and it's due to be launched on April the 13th. That's tomorrow, folks. <laughs> yes, tomorrow at uh, 10.15 Australian Eastern Standard Time in the evening. That's 22.15 Australian Eastern Standard Time, that launch. Well, Here's a feature from the European Space Agency prepared when JUICE arrived at Kourou, the launch site, and we have comments by Giuseppe Sari, the manager of the JUICE mission. After many years of study, development and testing, the European Space Agency's Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, JUICE, has finally arrived at Europe's spaceport in Kourou, French Guiana. Here, engineers will perform some final tests and fuel the spacecraft before it's mounted onto an Ariane 5 rocket for its scheduled launch in April. Before the spacecraft was transported to French Guiana, it passed a few milestones. In December 2022, it completed its last thermal vacuum test in an Airbus defence and space facility in Toulouse. Thermal test is very important uh, because it's the test which confirms that the spacecraft can survive and work in the environment that it will see in space. So very cold and vacuum. We already did a thermal test uh, two years ago, uh, but we decided to repeat it because uh, uh, four important instruments were not available. The test in December went very, very well. In Toulouse, JUICE also underwent a final software verification test, during which the spacecraft was controlled from ESA's ESOC Mission Control Center in Darmstadt, Germany. Mission controllers simulated sending and receiving commands to and from the spacecraft during the launch and early operations phase of the mission. The crucial moment during this period will be the deployment of JUICE's enormous solar arrays designed to power the mission in the dark reaches of the outer solar system. Folded up like a complex origami box for launch, they will need to correctly unfurl and at just the right angle or the spacecraft could overheat. Once JUICE is safely powered by the sun, it will be ready to begin its epic eight-year-long and extremely complex journey to Jupiter and its icy moons Europa, Callisto and Ganymede. The complexity of this mission is that uh, uh, it has a very difficult travelling to Jupiter. Uh, there are a lot of flyby, uh, of the planet, of the inner solar system, and of the moon of Jupiter. Uh, all that uh, generates a lot of stress from the point of view of flight dynamic and mission analysis. Therefore, the team has to become familiar with this element, and this is done initially by running 
the operation using a twin of the spacecraft, a digital twin of the spacecraft. But later on, when the spacecraft will be in flight, we will use an engineering model, which is kind of hardware brother of the spacecraft, which is used to debug the key operational procedure. This revolutionary mission to the Jupiter system is a key part of ESA's Cosmic Vision program, addressing two of its core themes. How does the solar system work? And what are the conditions for planet formation and the emergence of life? By studying Jupiter both as a planet and as a whole system, JUICE will teach us more about how planetary systems like Jupiter's work in our solar system and beyond. The exploration of Jupiter's icy moons Ganymede, Callisto and Europa could provide insight into the possible emergence of life, as we believe that these frozen worlds hold an abundance of water beneath their ice crusts. Certainly one of the most exciting element of the mission would be when we enter in orbit around Ganymede and we will do a real deep map and tomography of the moon. Ganymede is a very large moon, is bigger than Mercury. We know that there is a lot of water and like in Earth there is a magnetic field which is protecting the surface from the radiation from space. JUICE is a prime example of international collaboration between industry institutions and agencies. The spacecraft will be the heaviest mission ESA has launched to deep space. It has solar arrays measuring a whopping 85 square meters and will be the first spacecraft to orbit a moon other than our own. With its arrival at Europe's spaceport, JUICE takes another step towards its highly anticipated April launch, the beginning of its voyage to the largest planet of our solar system. 88.3 Southern FM. Two years ago, Ingenuity proved that we could do the impossible. We can fly on Mars. Let's talk about what's next. Here at the Surface Robotics Lab, testing is being done on future Mars helicopters. Teddy Sanatos is here with us today to talk about the helicopter that started it all, Ingenuity. Teddy, what's the latest? Ingenuity is doing great. Our baby's still flying on the surface of Mars. After two Earth years, one Mars year of total flight, racked up 10 kilometers of total distance flown. Our rotor system, our little cell phone processor on board, our off-the-shelf lithium-ion batteries are all doing fantastic. One area that we're looking very closely at is our solar panel. You can imagine after two years of flying on the surface of Mars, you'll get some dust on top. But we still have ample margin and ample energy to keep up our flight operations and the extended mission of continuing to scout and push the flight envelope of what's possible. The testing being done in this room is part of the next helicopter mission to Mars called the Sample Recovery Helicopters. The goal is to be a backup to get these samples back to Earth. Put simply, Perseverance collects the sample tubes. The sample return lander will retrieve those samples directly from Perseverance. And then there's a rocket inside of that lander that's actually going to send those samples back to Earth. As a backup to getting those sample tubes from Mars back to the lander, we're designing the next generation of helicopters to not only be able to pick up and carry a sample tube, but also drive around on the surface. Are there any other ways Ingenuity is influencing future Mars exploration? We're looking at a research concept called Mars Science Helicopter. It's a hexacopter, so six rotors in a ring around a central structure. It's about the size of the rover, and you can imagine in the future 
will have fleets of these Mars Science helicopters flying around, bringing important payloads to areas of Mars that we've never been able to access before. What's next for Ingenuity? So we're trying to fly faster, trying to fly higher. We've added new flight software capabilities. We can now detect landing sites airborne. Those sorts of winds are coming from the surface of Mars directly into the design of the new sample recovery helicopters. And she's done a fantastic job. Surpassed any sort of metric of success that anyone on the team could have ever imagined for this little tiny four pound spacecraft. In a paper published in the scientific journal Geoscience World, scientists have reported on what the ground-penetrating radar on the Chinese Zirong rover has revealed about the Martian soil. Much of the Martian surface is covered by a weathering layer called regolith or soil. It is produced by long-term surface processes such as impact gardening, alien erosion, water weathering, and glacial modifications. China's first Martian mission, TIANWEN-1, deployed a rover called Zhirong to the surface. It employed the Mars rover penetrating radar to unveil the detailed structure of the regolith layer and assess its loss tangent. The resulting radargram revealed the local regolith layer to be highly heterogeneous and geologically complex and characterized by structures that resemble partial or complete crater walls and near-surface impact lenses at a very shallow depth. However, comparable radar data from the lunar far side are rather uniform, despite the two surfaces being geologically contemporary. The close-to-surface crater presented in this study shows no detectable surface expression, which suggests an accelerated occultation rate for small craters on the surface of Mars as compared to the rate on the Moon. This is probably due to the relentless alien processes on the Martian surface that led to the burial of the crater and thus shielded it from further erosion. The high loss tangent indicates that the regolith at the TIANWEN-1 landing site is not dominated by water ice. These findings are also congruent with the Martian dust and soil compositions based on data from the United States Mars rover missions. However, the thickness of the global dust layer is non-uniform, ranging from zero to tens of meters. The spectra suggest that the dust-covered areas are prevalent in the north, while the south features more dust-free areas. The Zhirong rover, released by the lander, traversed about 12 hubboundred meters southward in the first six months, navigating around dunes and driving on small craters or small rocks where possible, on terrains with a gradually decreasing surface elevation. Geomorphologically and topographically, the surface terrain during this traverse remains flat and smooth with an average slope of 3 degrees in most areas, facilitating long-distance traversal. Tens of impact craters with a diameter of 2 to 10 meters with varying degrees of degradation can be seen in orbital images along this traverse. Some show relatively high albedo and protuberant rims, and others have little relief, which makes it difficult to assess whether they are either primary or secondary impacts. Many rocks of various sizes, smaller than 2 meters, are scattered on and around the exploration path. Over 2 million rocks with diameters ranging from 1.4 to 8 meters were also observed from the high-resolution imaging camera mosaics within the landing region. Some of the rocks seen by Nate Cam are clearly fluted, suggesting alien abrasion. Alien bed forms are also commonly found along the exploration path.
NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment data with a resolution of one quarter of a meter were used to characterize geomorphological features of the Zhurong landing area. Zhurong is equipped with six scientific instruments, including the Mars Surface Composition Detector using a laser-induced breakdown spectrometer and a visible and near-infrared spectrometer mineralogy detector and a multispectral camera. The Mars Rover Penetrating Radar with dual-frequency channels, the Mars Rover Magnetometer, the Mars Climate Station and the Navigation and Terrain Camerarray also on the rover. The navigation and terrain cameras mounted on the Zhurong rover are binocular stereo cameras, which are primarily designed to provide support for the guidance, navigation, and control of the rover. They are used for three-dimensional panoramic imaging of the surface and for studying topographical and geological structures. The scientists selected subsets of the image data of the region of interest acquired by the cameras and stitched them to obtain an overall large field of view image of the area. The radar antenna is inherited from the Chang-3 mission, which was also used to detect relatively deep substructures. The antenna is a Vivaldi type consisting of two perpendicular transmitting and receiving elements. High and low frequency channels with a vertical resolution of a few centimeters and a few meters can be used alongside. The radar also adopts a linear frequency modulated signal as its transmitted signal. Further, to avoid the use of high working voltages, it can also provide higher transmission power compared to pulsed signals. And now on the Space Show, we return to Planet Earth. This is Planet Earth. You're looking at Planet Earth. This is Planet Earth. Welcome to Season 4 of our Planet Earth series in which we look at how space technology is helping us understand our home planet. This is Episode 47. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. An instrument to measure pollution has hitched a ride to geostationary orbit attached to Intersat's 40E communications satellite. Called TEMPO, the Tropospheric Emissions Monitoring of Pollution instrument is a NASA instrument built by Ball Aerospace Company. Launch uh, had been uh, planned for January of this year aboard a Falcon 9 rocket but was delayed and finally got away on Good Friday. Now, once positioned to 38,000 kilometres above the equator, it will become part of an international air quality satellite system that will offer a holistic view of how pollution is transported around the Northern Hemisphere. The view will be of North America during daylight hours, and it will make hourly observations. Here is how the launch went from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Welcome to our live launch coverage of the IS-40E and Tempo mission for our customer, Intelsat. Today's launch marks our 222nd overall SpaceX mission to date and our 23rd launch this year. My name is Kate Tice, Quality Systems Engineering Manager here at SpaceX, and I'm joining you today from SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California. We have a pretty unique payload on board 
The second stage tonight, IS-40E, is a geosynchronous communication satellite that will provide coverage over North America for Intelsat's commercial aviation, mobility, and network service customers. Attached to IS-40E is NASA's Tropospheric Emissions Monitoring Pollution, or TEMPO, instrument. Operated by Intelsat, TEMPO is a partnership between NASA and the Smithsonian Institution's Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory and will improve life on Earth by revolutionizing the way scientists observe air quality. It will also be the first space-based instrument to monitor and track air pollution across North America on an hourly basis and report observations during the day. The satellite is scheduled to enter into service next month and TEMPO will start operations this summer. Here's a little more on Intelsat and today's payload. Intelsat is bridging the digital divide by operating one of the world's largest satellite fleet and connectivity infrastructures, enabling people and their tools to speak over oceans, see across continents, and listen through the skies to communicate, cooperate, and coexist. With a history of firsts in telecommunications, Intelsat team members are addressing a new generation of challenges. IS-40E is the latest addition to our fleet of 56 geostationary satellites. It will be operated at 91 West, so over North America. Its primary mission is managed mobility services over North America. Intelsat IS-40E satellite will provide focused coverage for many of Intelsat's business units. The E stands for EPIC, a high-throughput satellite connecting customers in the air, on the ground, and at sea. It means in-flight connectivity for commercial airline passengers, connectivity for people on business jets, connectivity for maritime users like people on cruise ships, as well as mobility for disaster recovery. In addition to serving Intelsat customers, IS-40E will host a NASA and Smithsonian payload called TEMPO. Intelsat will operate the instrument while it monitors and tracks air pollution across North America on an hourly basis with the ability to stay over a region of interest during a natural disaster, like a major fire or volcanic eruption. This is going to be the first time that we have an instrument providing air quality measurement from the geostationary orbit. It will allow to better understand the dynamics of air quality over the large cities. Intelsat's role is basically to provide um, the ground systems which enables the Smithsonian to send commands to the satellite and obtain measured data. This measured data then is stored in our Riverside systems that will be accessed by the Smithsonian for analysis and uh, provide to NASA. Stage two, box flow complete. And there's that call out. So as of now, Falcon 9 is fully loaded with all of its propellants. The IS-40E and Tempo payload continues to be healthy and the Falcon 9 team is tracking no major issues on the rocket. LD, go for launch. And there's our final go for launch tonight coming from our launch director. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, ignition, engine full power, and lift off. And then how's that? 40 E, go and how's that? Go, Falcon. And that launch happened on Good Friday. 
Now, temp is a grating spectrometer sensitive to ultraviolet, visible and near-infrared light. It will measure the spectra required to retrieve ozone, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, formaldehyde, glyoxal and aerosols. Similar instruments will be flown aboard the European Union's third-generation Meteosat weather satellite next year and Southern and South Korea's GeoCompSat-2B satellite, which was launched in 2020. Recently, the first fully integrated powered testing of Tempo on Intrasat IS-40E at Maxar Technologies factory was completed in Palo Alto, California before the launch. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie, and hopefully we'll be back next Wednesday at 7 o'clock.